I yeah. mean, the dude hit it out of the park first go in terms of what what the stage is capable of doing. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to have you. We're excited to be in conversation about another great script. As we were preparing to setting up our recording equipment, getting the meeting going and all that, Jackson said, "This the play that we are talking about, blank play, which you have already seen the title, so we always do this where Super we pretend secretive. you don't know. But for now, blank play that we're talking about today is really nice following after our conversation from last week after the revolution by amy herzog yeah it's true uh so yeah if you are listening along in the season last week we talked about after the revolution and this week we are talking talking about waiting for lefty by clifford odets which is both like an important play in that conversation that after the revolution kind of kicked us off into and also an important play for american theater history it's one of those like real like Plays that like had such a fiery life when it was first done and uh, had ripple effects throughout theater history as a result of it. Yeah, well, and it, it still has a fiery life today. People produce Waiting for Lefty all the time. And that's despite that it's a it's a very specific almost piece of period art. I mean, it's from a very specific moment in New York City history. It's inspired by a very specific real event in New York City history. It uses language from that period in history. It uses references from that period in history. It's very much about and for and commenting on that period in history and yet it continues to have an incredibly vibrant life, in part because of how good it is, how good the writing is, how good the theatrical imagination is, but also, more sadly, because of how relevant the issues in the play still are, unbelievably. (laughs) I was trying to, like, think through, as I was thinking through this podcast, I was like, what sort of, like, cultural moment could I compare this to? Because this play was written into a very specific cultural moment, and I was like, what could I, like, you know, give a one-for-one in our current moment as if someone wrote a play about X? And turns out, I just boiled down to pretty much, well, it's, no, it's just pretty much directly still relevant. It's not directly relevant. Yeah, you know all that stuff that's happening right now? It's just that. It's, it's about that. that. It's just about a hundred years ago, and it's just still happening. You know all that stuff uh-huh. where the bosses take all the money and they don't pay their workers <laughs> enough to make ends meet. Yep, that's still going mm-hmm. on. Still, still going happening. on. You know all that stuff where like we put a bunch of money into war and send people off to die. Yep, still going yep, on. Still, still just still, still happening. <laughs> Clifford Odette somewhere is like, I thought I dealt with this when I wrote the freaking play. <laughs> it seemed like it was good at the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. We promise yeah, this no, will it's... not be a political episode, but... No, I mean, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's it's a fun play. It's a fun play to be kind of coming uh to do at the end of our season too. We've we've got we've had quite the run of different plays this season and we say pretty frequently it's it's so much fun to get to like just flow between all these different scripts, finding through lines where they are or jumping to different time frames whenever the the opportunity arises and this is this this is a similar similar play in that vein. We're excited to kind of be wrapping up this season. Um we're going to take a short break as is our practice. Um, over the holiday season, then sometime in early 2023, probably like either late January or early February, we'll start coming back with some more episodes. We won't be leaving you for long, but we're just going to reset and get the new season chugging away. So, uh, so yeah, you can kind of mark mark your expectations for that. One more play next week, um, and then uh, the the kind of short break for the holiday season, and then we'll be back in 2023. Well, that's right, and we will be back with season 10, if you can believe it. Man, season we 10, we're going to have to come up with some sort of... Season. Yeah, we're going to have to like do something <laughs> yeah, special. Some, we should think about Some that, sort of so. themes, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Might be a little late in the day to come up with something. Well, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. 
But yes, as Jackson said, this week, next week, and then a break. Keep that in mind. We uh, we have a lot of episodes out these days. So if there's things that you want to go back and listen to to fill that time, there's a lot of great episodes out there. Of course, we just did a themed month where we revisited scripts. So that'd be a great opportunity if you want to check out those old conversations in conversation with the new conversations. Uh, but there's also, you know, we're, we're, we're very quickly approaching 200 episodes of content about theater scripts discussions that you can access on all of the places where our podcast lives those episodes are there find it find a play from the list maybe find a play from the list and read it and then listen to the conversation uh, and be even more engaged in what's going on and then send us an email send us a fa- uh, social media comment uh, we can have that conversation further into the future uh, and and just continue this sort of community that is building uh, we've had some great conversations lately with uh, listeners and patrons about the scripts, about their perceptions, about places where they think we're wrong, and about places where they they love what was discussed and and it brought new insight uh, and everything in between, really. Yeah, I, I imagine we'll have a somewhat intentional moment for a thank you on our last episode of the of the season next time. But but it's been really cool this season to get to chat with all of you about plays, about plays that we are talking about, about plays that you're doing. So so yeah, as as you uh, read and listen through the podcast, uh, we'd love to keep having those conversations. Find us on all those places, and let's keep talking about these plays. Yeah, definitely. And and speaking of listeners and patrons, if you are not yet a patron of NoScript, a financial supporter of NoScript, we want to encourage you to just think about it. That's what this plug at the beginning of every episode is for, is just to ask you to think about it if that's not you already. We have amazing people over on our Patreon who've signed up over there to give a small amount every month to support the running of NoScript. The lowest tier that you can join on is a dollar a month, $12 over the course of a year, and even at that amount, what you do for the podcast is so helpful. We love to do this show. It's a great part of our lives, getting to have conversations with each other and then further with you about really good plays, about really interesting material. It broadens our minds. It gets us engaged in lots of different kinds of conversations. We love to do it. It is just not free for us to do it. Running a podcast of this kind in the way that we have costs money. And Jackson and I couldn't make that happen if not for the financial supporters over on NoScript. Uh, they are on patreon.com slash NoScript podcast. Again, that URL, that's the easiest way to find it. Patreon.com slash all one word. No script podcast. Again, you sign up over there. You choose a monthly level, lowest tier one dollar a month. That's great. If you can afford more, of course, we we really appreciate more. But that one dollar a month level is still so great. There's there's benefits to being a patron. Of course, you can check those out on Patreon. Uh, the first and foremost benefit is that patrons get a lot more advance notice about what's going on on the podcast. We sort of keep our regular listenership updated on kind of a weekly basis of what's coming up on the podcast uh, and patrons get more forewarning than that so that they can engage on that deeper level if they so choose if it's not you yet please consider it to those that are supporting us thank you thank you thank you you are making no script possible in the way that it exists right now and for that we're so grateful because it's a blessing in our lives and we hope that it is beneficial and encouraging to you all out there so one more time patreon.com slash no script podcast and we hope to see you over there yes indeed thank you all so much it's been great to chat with you all over there we'll see you at patreon.com slash no script podcast and now back to the script here we go. We're jumping in. So we're talking about Waiting for Lefty by Clifford Odets today. Clifford Odets is a playwright that we've done before on the podcast. We have done the play that immediately that was written basically immediately after this one um, uh, before. We did Awake and Sing, I believe, back in season four or five. Um, so if you want to be a part of that conversation, you can go back and check that out. We did a little bit of introduction at that point, but I'll just very quickly sum up Clifford Odets um, and then uh, talk a little bit about the, the kind of uh, historical moment that this play came out. 
out in um, because it's a particular one and it and it kind of brought it into the spotlight in a very visceral way. Um, just just Jets, quickly before uh, you go on, because you mentioned Awake and Sing, just a sort of funny comparison of the two scripts, because as you mentioned, Awake and Sing came out kind of right in the aftermath of this huge success of Waiting for Lefty. So much so that when Awake and Sing was published and was getting produced, it was billed as by the playwright of Waiting for Lefty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep. So, so yeah, this is, this is, this is one of the ones that puts them on the map in terms of, in terms of future plays, uh, and, and other, other of his works. Uh, Clifford Odette's 1906 to 1963 are the dates of his life. And he's in that moment of theater that is like, you know, right after Eugene O'Neill has his prominence and before Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams kind of come to their full prominence. So Odette's kind of occupies this, this middle ground between those authors. Um, and, and you can see 19. 1906 and 1963, it makes sense the contents of this play. This is a big moment in history um, that, that he is living through. He's living through uh, uh, both of the world wars. He's living through uh, uh, kind of revolutionary times. And 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 he's definitely writing about uh, about all of that content. <laughs> um, uh, he's uh, the, 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 the kind of progress of him uh, kind of occupying that space, successor of Eugene O'Neill in some ways, but then eventually uh, his, his sort Sort of, uh, sort of drama-based plays, and also these kind of agitprop plays are are eventually kind of uh, moved moved out of uh, out of these the the focus as Miller and Tennessee Williams kind of occupy that space. But that doesn't like reduce the overall uh, importance of his historical impact and the ongoing uh, uh, excitement around his plays, especially this play. Waiting for Lefty um, was uh, produced in 1934, 35, or, or it's put on stage in 35, so he's writing it in 34. And the um, the kind of background of this play is in 1934, uh, there was a... Uh, uh, a strike that was put on in New York City, uh, taxi cab drivers, um, and a pretty important meeting uh, that a lot of the same things that, that happened in the play happened at this meeting. Um, there was uh, one particular person who was elected to kind of lead this um, uh, kind of union of folks to strike. And while he didn't, spoilers, someone someone dies at the end of this play, um, but uh, while, while this, uh, this uh, leader of this union didn't die, he was uh, intentionally sidelined. I think the thing I read said he was drunk and kind of left to go to sleep during the union meeting and his friends kind of woke him up got him to the meeting and they went on strike so it's a pretty pretty uh, fresh memory in the in the mind of New York theater audiences and uh, this play is certainly um, based in some ways upon upon that strike a lot of the same a lot of the same elements are in it the production aired uh, aired <laughs> the production was first produced at the Civic Repertory theater in 1935 which was an important theater at the time I believe in its fourth or fifth season and it was specific uh, 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 planted as a theater to engage in political or, or evocative uh, theater to kind of push the envelope on a new work that was able to kind of speak into the political moment. And this play certainly did that. Um, uh, it, it opened at the Civic Repertory Theater and then it transferred to the Longacre Theater uh, on Broadway in 1935 again, so just a couple months later, and that production ran for over 100 performances. Um, this uh, this uh, production production kind of got a lot of uh, great reviews from different people. There were some uh, that kind of talked about some of its um, archetypal characters, um, but for the most part, uh, the reviews that you read about it are about how visceral this play was because it was so relevant to uh, the people who were watching it. The the it, it quickly became like the fourth wall is broken right away at the top of the show, and it quickly became a communal event. Um, as you are sitting in the theater, there there's uh, reports of people kind of yelling "strike" from the audience. <laughs> there's there's like cues of of like planted actors in the audience to yell "strike," but the whole audience starts yelling "strike" at the end of the play. So it's a visceral visceral reception to the play, both critically and from the audience's perspective. And I think that's part of why it went on to have such a prominent life, um, uh, is because of its sort of visceral uh, nature. You 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 have. Uh, 
the the list of productions that I have mostly have to do with kind of that that older older time frame. It, it was produced again in Boston in 1935. British uh, premiere at the Unity Theater in 1936. It was produced in Australia in 1936. The next one I have is a big jump all the way to 2013. It was produced in London again at the White Bear Theater for the next time. But what what my list of productions doesn't account for is just all the like regional houses, the college productions, um, all of the ways that this play continues to be produced. And part of it is because of the sort of um, the content of the play, which you're going to get into. Part of it is also the kind of great characters that are in it. It's very distinct sort of vignette based uh, play. So you have great scenes for great characters and, and actors to kind of dig into that then kind of flows imaginatively throughout the play. So I'm excited to kind of jump into the conversation around it because there's there's so much to dig into in it. Yeah, oh, totally. The scene work is just incredible. The dialogue writing, the the characters pursuing goals in opposition to each other. Uh, the, the play has taken some criticism over time of being maybe more heavily skewed towards propaganda. That like one reviewer called it propaganda, not art. Now I think that's. Silly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to that, I'd say that to that person's face that I think that that is a silly statement. But the 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 criticism has been levied that the characters are maybe a little archetypal, a little stereotype. Uh, the villains are really villainy, and the heroes are really heroy, and that it's designed to be a piece of uh, social commentary, moving people to strike against the sort of big business oppressors more than it is designed to be a sort of subtle piece of human drama. And that may be more or less true, depending on how you read the script, but that has been levied. Now, in contrast to that is the fact that the scenes from this play are often used in scene work settings, in acting classes, yeah. in workshops. Uh, uh, Meisner used stuff from Clifford Odets. I mean, in the kinds of settings where you pull scenes to give actors material to work on together, this play often comes to the forefront of, of scenes for those kinds of settings. Now, it just depends on the situation, of course. But it is interesting that for all of the criticism about it being mostly a piece of propaganda or more heavily a piece of propaganda, the quality of the uh, acting the the material offered to actors has been uh, uh, reaffirmed over and over by generations of acting teachers who use this material in their classrooms and workshops. So just something to think about and ponder about the script, uh, because I think a lot yeah. of people have read this one, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and it's it's an interesting before we move on to other 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 parts of the conversation. It's an interesting uh, critique to levy against a play in general because if you look at like, you know, Greek theater or 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 Shakespearean theater or every, anywhere that theater has been, it's always had this political element to it. Now, now the degree to which it is is just like straight propaganda, I agree it's that's not a that's not an accurate critique of the play. Um but if something was just completely propaganda, then you'd have an argument, but so much of theater is about um, trying to offer a, a stance on something and and giving voice to something that maybe doesn't like uh, uh, doesn't get a lot of spotlight in in the public discourse or or people are afraid to talk about in the public discourse. So like so so having it be an a agitation propaganda agitprop theater um, uh, is is kind of in keeping with with a long running. Uh, uh, um, a role of theater in in the public social discourse realm. So so it's an interesting critique to even have levied against a, a play and 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 have it be a bad thing about it. Yeah, cer certainly. And this play is more obviously political than other pieces of drama are. But I, I, you're definitely right that all plays contain an aspect of social relevance uh, that 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 makes them political in some way or another. I think I think I took a. As I recall, I took a theater and politics class at one point where, like, maybe the core idea was that all theater is political. It's been, it's been so Like long. forum theater, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah I, I can't remember all the details of it. But, hey, just for, <laughs> for, as a matter of interest, there you go. <laughs> um, so, Waiting for Lefty is set... Um, it's sort of set in two places. Well, actually set at many places at once, but there's a sort of framework for the play. And then there's 
lots of the vignettes which go to different scenes. But the the framework of the play is set in kind of two places at once. The first place is like a meeting hall where a union meeting has been organized to decide whether or not to strike. The union at question is the Taxi Drivers Union of New York City. Um, and they are deciding, of course, as Jackson described in the wake of all of that happened in New York City at the time, There, this is a play about the decision to strike or not to strike for the taxi driver's union. So we're in a meeting hall for the taxi driver's union. It is simultaneously set in the place that the audience is. One of the premises, one of the interesting theatricalities of this play is that the audience is present at the union meeting. In fact, the audience is the audience for the union meeting. The stage is the stage where the speakers come to speak, and then the audience is the audience whom the speakers are speaking to. The audience is part of and enmeshed in this decision for the community, and it is often noted, anything you read about Waiting for Lefty will say, that the, the play plants... Uh, members of the, like, actors throughout the audience who sort of uh, uh, contribute to the drama on stage. They come up to speak. They come up to play scenes. They shout things from the audience. And so one of the major features of the show is that the audience is involved in the action of the union meeting. And, in, and as Jackson described, in history, especially in the first few productions where it was really relevant and specific, audiences would get involved to the point of chanting and screaming strike at the end of the play to the point of calling out things about the characters on stage now as it's become a little farther removed from its specific historical context some of that has gone down but certainly the core experience being that the audience feels present at this meeting is still really really key to the play so all, you have that going on. Simultaneously, the play is vignette-based, as Jackson said, and it's composed of these sort of seven vignettes, and many of them are not taking place at the union meetings. They're like flashbacks or examples. Characters in the play play scenes from elsewhere that sort of inform the context of the union meeting. You sort of imagine that, for example, the first one, a uh, character named Joe stands up, and then Joe and Joe's wife, Edna, play a scene where they're discussing whether or not he should strike because they're so poor, basically. And you sort of imagine that in the union meeting, Joe is telling that story. But for the sake of the theatricality of the show, we actually see the scene played out on stage. Um, and as these vignettes from other locations are going on on the stage, the people up on the stage, all the chair people and the, the union uh, boss, who's this sort of corrupt figure named Fat, F-A-T-T, uh, they all sit around the edges of these scenes that are taking place and they're blowing cigar smoke into the scene and they're chuckling and muttering and commenting on what's going on in the scene itself. So you can see that this play for being this, you know, accused to be this sort of piece of stereotypical propaganda is uh, quite theatrically mature. Many things are happening at the same time on stage in the magical thing that theater can do, where multiple things happen at the same time, where audiences are having multiple experiences at once that overlap to create an incredible experience. And so, I, I, I mean, to that accusation, I respond... For all of that, the play is highly theatrical, highly mature, and uh, represents someone who thinks v at a very high level about what the stage can do, which is interesting because it was Clifford Adet's first play. <laughs> I <Yeah>. mean, <laughs> the dude hit it out of the park first go in terms of what, what the stage is capable of doing. So just a quick overview of what happens across the vignettes in the course of the play before we'll, we'll dive into more conversation. So we start at the union meeting. Uh, a corrupt union leader named Fat is basically, his point is, hey, we shouldn't strike because 
X, Y, and Z reason. Because we're, we want to support the president. Because it's not the right time to strike. Because strikes don't really work. All of these reasons. Of course, you learn over the course of the play that fat is actually corrupt. Probably paid off by the taxi driving owners or, or whatever across the course of the play. There's also a gunman who is like, you know, a, 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 a bouncer. A, a big sort of, I'm going to beat you up if you speak against us kind of figure. Um, so fat starts the play by giving sort of his speech about why they shouldn't strike. Strike. And then Joe stands up. Joe comes from the audience to say, this is so not true. We definitely should strike. And here's why. And we go to the first vignette that does not take place in the taxi driver's meeting. Um, and that is the scene that I described between Joe and Edna. This Joe and Edna scene is famous. You'll see it all over cut out of the play just for how good it is. Um, basically, Joe comes home after a long day as a taxi worker and dis- a taxi driver and discovers that their furniture has all been taken from their really uh, sort of shabby apartment already because it's all they can afford. Uh, and Edna says it's because they haven't paid. Um, and basically that starts this push and pull between Joe and Edna where Edna says, we're so poor that the kids are literally getting sick. They're going to get rickets. They're going to have spinal deformations. They're not eating the kinds of foods you need to eat to be a healthy child. We're, we're starving. We're, I mean, what, what can you do about this? And Joe basically says, what do you want me to do? I work all day. I'm out driving the streets all day. I can't, I can't make any money and there's no other jobs out there. I don't know what you want me to do. And Edna says, basically, you should go on strike. You have to strike. My grandpa strike. And that worked out. They got more money. And Joe says, well, strikes doesn't work. We're getting paid this. Maybe I won't get any money while we're striking. Is that really? And so they go back and forth. It's an incredible scene. You should read it. I'm not going to be able to do justice to the description of how wonderful the push and pull and the argument and the humanity in the scene is. But at the end of the scene, basically, Edna convinces Joe to go off and strike. She does that through a huge variety of tactics. It's a steady in having a goal and using many tactics to achieve it. At the end of the scene, Joe says, you're right. I'm going to go find Lefty and we're going to go to our union and try to strike. Now, Lefty is a character that we don't meet over the course of the play. In fact, in that first union hall meeting, uh, they're asking, where's Lefty? Lefty is the chairperson of this group who have come to decide to strike or not, and he's not at the meeting. So now we've, we've gone back in time to Joe and Edna, and we've learned that Joe went to find Lefty after this conversation with his wife in order to get this thing rolling. Um, now the, the vignettes that come after this have a little bit less to do specifically with the union strike. Um, that they're all kind of part of the general conversation though. So I'm going to be just a little bit quicker with some of those. We have a vignette featuring, uh, Fayette, who is like a big business guy at a chemical company and Miller, who is a chemist. Uh, Miller is being promoted. He's going to have to work on, uh, basically poisonous gas for chemical warfare. And he's very uncomfortable with that. His brother other died in war. His family has been really touched by war. Um, and the big business guy, Fayette, says, well, this is what we got to do. We make money on this. We're also at war. We got to protect our country. But it's the he, you can see that Miller's uncomfortable across the course of the scene. Finally, at the end, Fayette ex- ex- says, basically, uh, we want you to spy on your boss, too. Just report back to us what he's doing on kind of a weekly basis. This spying that they want Miller to do kind of pushes Miller over the edge, and he refuses to do it, even though he knows it's going to cost him his job and ends up kind of punching the big business guy in the mouth to end the scene. Um, the next vignette is uh, a very sad little love story. Uh, Florence and her brother are discussing their uh, Florence's boyfriend, Sid. Uh, Florence's brother says, look, we all like Sid, but you cannot continue this relationship. He's a taxi driver and taxi drivers make no money. You're going to starve. You want to have kids? You want to have a family? You want to have a life? You're going to starve. You cannot go with this guy. Eventually, Sid comes in and the brother leaves and Florence and Sid basically have this conversation over again. Can we really be together given that I make absolutely no money? Again, the war theme is brought in. Sid describes that his brother, because of the economic conditions, went off to fight with the Navy, um, and and he's worried about what the Navy, what the Army, what the the military, rather, 
um, has done to his brother, kind of because he was forced to do this. Um, Florence kind of at the end of the scene reaffirms that she wants to be with Sid, but he tells her that that's just, they can't be together because they're just going to starve to death if this is the, the direction they head. It ends with a very painful tableau of Sid kind of collapsed on the floor, burying his head in her lap. Now we go back to the union meeting. Um, the, the, the corrupt union boss, Fat, brings up a guy from the audience named Tom Clayton who claims to be a worker who has uh, been involved in strikes in Philadelphia and who says, it's not worth it, man. They broke the strike. We all lost our jobs. I'm blacklisted. That's why I moved to New York City. You guys, this is a stupid plan. But in an uh, abundance of coincidence and bad planning, Tom Clayton, quote-unquote, <laughs> brother runs up on stage and said, that guy's name isn't Tom Clayton. He's my brother. He's a union breaker. He's a spy. He's a corrupt dude. He goes around to union meetings and pretends to be a worker who striked in a different city to convince them not to strike. And uh, the fake Tom Clayton runs off. Again, the fact that it was his brother is like, well, somebody did not plan <laughs> that very well. <laughs> We go on to a scene in a in a uh, hospital between two doctors, Dr. Barnes and Dr. Benjamin. Dr. Benjamin is Jewish, and he has come into Dr. Barnes' office because he was thrown off of a surgery, a surgery that they were performing sort of pro bono uh, in the charity ward, um, and that, that some doctor, a really incompetent doctor who is like the son of a senator or the nephew of a senator or something, is performing the surgery, and Dr. Benjamin's very concerned because that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but Dr. Barnes reveals, well, hey, while you're here, they're actually shutting down the charity ward because it doesn't make any money, and they're firing you. Now, Dr. Benjamin says, well, wait a minute. I have seniority at the hospital. I'm the top doctor. I shouldn't be the one who's fired. But Barnes revealed, well, you're fired because you're Jewish. Um, and so there's an anti-Semitism aspect there. So Dr. Benjamin sort of decides, you know what, I'm going to fight this this kind of oppression, this kind of thinking. Um, I'm While I I'm fired as a doctor. I'll make some money as a taxi driver and to fight this this sort of corrupt society. Finally, we're back at the union meeting. A man named Agate or Gate stands up and says, uh, listen, workers, we this is what we have to do. We're going to strike. Listen to all these stories that have been said. Uh, Fat and the security guard sort of try to stop him, but the committee steps in and there's a rousing speech. We're going to unite and fight. Even if we, we're, we're not waiting for Lefty anymore, we're going to do this. We're going to strike. And then at the very end of the play, a man runs in from outside and says, I found Lefty. I found Lefty. I found him in the alley, shot in the head. And that is the thing that kind of pushes everybody over the edge. The play ends with them chanting, strike, 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 strike. That's the end of the play. And again, just to remind you, the audience is part of this meeting. So you can imagine the power of being in a room, people all around you, strike, 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 strike. Like this isn't a play that happens on stage. This is a play that happens amongst the audience. Yeah, in the theater, uh, very, very visceral, visceral uh, uh, production or, or opportunities to, for it to be a visceral one. Nice work summarizing that. Um, and and yeah, I think I think the, the uh, something that I just definitely want to be sure to talk about is the way that this play artfully weaves um, between these scenes. Um, uh, the, the, the way that like that, cause, cause one of the stage directions has the committee that's there, which includes, uh, 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 the, the kind of guy trying to resist it, the fat. Um, and he's got, uh, he's uh, stage directions have him like smoking a cigar and the cigar smoke kind of floats its way into these other scenes. So he's kind of this ominous presence throughout all these other little vignettes, which are, uh, either characters who are a part of the committee or characters who come up from the audience and it kind of weaves between them really beautifully in this like, like kind of like you're you're in two times at the same time uh sort of feeling um of of uh, uh of these different characters telling their stories in 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 a kind of artful way even as they apply to this one meeting that's happening yeah, I mean, because the chair people, who include Fat, the corrupt union boss, sit around the edge of the actions of all the scenes, they're never they're never gone from it, right? So you have this world in which the fact that they are there sort of influences how you perceive the scene, but you also understand that the scene is working on them. 
that each mm-hmm. scene is basically in the context of the meeting, like a story of the the ways in which all of these taxi drivers are facing the harsh reality of their starvation, their oppression, and all of this stuff. And that means at the end that they should strike. So it's an interesting sort of dual purpose to never move us entirely away from the union meeting. We never uh, wipe the stage and go to a little box set for Joe and Edna's apartment, right? It, it all happens in the middle of this circle of people who are there to decide about the strike. And it influences them, and they influence it. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I love the sort of, like, the sort of minimalist approach to it, um, the, the way that, like, these scenes can be kind of born out of the same people that are there um, because it ties it into exactly what you're saying that these, these uh, the actions of these people um, will have, will have these sort of like building blocks effect on everyone. Like you, you, you don't get to hear about the story of Joe and Edna until that meeting necessarily, maybe lefty knows, but lefty's not there. Um, And so, so Joe bringing it to the forefront, adjusts some of the opinions. Interestingly, the other character who's there besides the committee member is a gunman, some sort of security person. Um, And he's kind of in the scene too, adding those stakes higher and higher, but, but pretty quickly as more and more of these stories come out, um, he recedes into the background, at least in the reading of it. You could do different things with the staging of it. But uh, what, what at the beginning is a pretty ominous force of the corrupt union boss, Fat, and this gunman. Uh, slowly the gunman recedes and you see uh, Fat's argument consistently knocked away by each of the people who come up either from the circle or from the the uh, gathered union um, to uh, either uh, take down Clancy or uh, uh, Clayton when he comes up, um, but also to negate uh, Fat arguments. Yeah, the the power of the gunman or the bouncer and fat are certainly across the course of the play really reduced. Uh, to the point where kind of in the big final moment where uh, the the guy stands up to say we should strike the sort of final big speech giver and they try to stop him. They try to drag him off stage. Finally, the other committee people physically intervene. Um, and so you go from this place of the gunman being a very terrifying presence, people sort of calling out from the audience things and then sort of ducking their heads so that the gunman can't find them and fat can't point them out and have them dragged out and beaten up or whatever uh, to when at the end of the play they finally physically intervene to prevent this kind of violence and intimidation from going forward. And we get a sense in the Joe and Edna scene that this is kind of part of the fabric of the union. I mean, the, uh, Edna and Joe basically acknowledge, look, we know our union is corrupt. But Joe says, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to be a lot? You want me to survive this thing? I, I mean, what, what can I do about it? But they'll put a bullet in my head, uh, which, of course, they do to Lefty. Yeah, yeah. And, and the threat is always there for, for them to do so. And that's why those, like... Those scenes are obviously they're vital scenes to try to understand what's going on. If the whole play just took place with like the sort of like logical debate at or or or, or visceral debate at a union meeting, that'd be a very different play. Uh, may, maybe it would be a good play, but may, but it'd be a very different play from this one because this one like grounds you in these real people's stories. I'm thinking especially of Joe and Edna and then Florence and Sid scenes that are like, and all the scenes have this sort of heartstring nature to them, but there's, there's, uh, there's, there's this realness about these scenes that ground the debate, um, that is happening and the sort of, uh, posturing that is happening in the union meeting and like, oh no, these, these have like real life and death scenarios, real, uh, um, a bigotry as a, as a result or as as the um, uh, prompting for these these uh, debates that they're having, um, and so the 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 those vignettes are are kind of vitally important to moving the needle on the audience's uh, perception of why a strike should happen as well. Because again, this is a play that that is very very uh, whole. The whole theater is is a part of of what's happening, and so you're you're also kind of slowly being convinced as an audience member, yeah, yeah, we should go on strike. (laughs) Yeah, I love that you mentioned the sort of alternate, an alternate 
version of this play where it is just a full-on debate at a union meeting and people step up and tell these stories. And what that reminds me of, of course, is like a Greek tragedy, right? Yeah. People, there's, it's a community setting, right? You're on the steps of the town hall. You're at the steps of the palace. Uh, and the community is gathered to see the leaders speak and debate moral issues, right? Should we bury this guy? What are the consequences of that? What, what about this plague and this famine that is struck our nation uh, and, and the leaders stand up and and they each scene is a kind of contest of ideas at the same time that it brings in action and those Greek plays involve a lot of storytelling they're just storytelling by the characters right Oedipus stands up and tells a long story about the journey that he took and these swords people that run and ran him off the road and all of this stuff um, and, and, and so you get the same kind of basic premise at, at a very core level community scenes high stakes issues you, the audience is sort of part of the community that is gathered to see this thing played out and they're kind of step up and, and debates or or contests between typically in the Greek tragedies two people maybe three people um, and so I, I mean in some ways waiting for lefty just is that and then taken sort of one step further when the time comes for storytelling, the storytelling isn't just a character monologuing the story. We actually sort of play the story out from the imagination of the characters. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an imaginative riff on it, basically, uh, and and the, like structure structure wise, and and again, it's so important to retain the chorus of committee members there to still like kind of evoke that same sense, um, because all of a sudden the lights change. You haven't you haven't necessarily left the meeting, and yet you're in a different time and place, which like unity of time and place is such a big deal in kind of Greek tragic theater. This is kind of riffing on that, not not in a full like different spot necessarily because we're still like kept imaginatively in the union meeting and yet we have transitioned to a different place so it's it's a really um uh um uh, i'm trying to find the right word it's an exciting thing kind of a pleasing mind jump to go on where you all of a sudden are are brought into these characters lives and excited and re-engaged almost a little brechtian all of a sudden you're like uh uh, uh alienated in in the theater term from the union meeting to a new spot and then when you come back to the the union meeting you have a fresh ability to re-engage it yeah, I, I, that's an interesting way to think about it because I actually I wonder if it's not really more designed to pull us emotionally into the plights of mm. the taxi drivers so that we can yeah. engage on that level rather than it is trying to uh, divorce us from the emotional plights of the characters. That, yeah, so that's that a good point. Yeah. Make a, uh, a logical jump. I mean, I think that seeing Joe and Edna in their desperation and their, I mean, the, the very, the very much. So the end of that family is, is what is at stake for Joe and Edna in that scene, whether that means they're, I mean, the kids might literally die of rickets of might grow up with spinal deformations. You know, you've never seen a grapefruit, like the idea of starvation and sickness and death as the end of the family, or whether as Edna proposes, she ought not take the kids and go. Apparently she has this from a past life that it has makes a lot of money now and is still sort of interested in being with her and whether an option for them might be that she takes the kids and goes to do that and leaves Joe just as a way to survive. But either way, the end of the family is there. And for us to see that end, those stakes on Joe and Edna's face, the way that they grapple to hold on with each other uh, is, I think it's a more stirring emotional experience experience than potentially if Joe stood up and said, look, I had this, we had this thing with my wife the other, you know, just this last week. She said, you know, I had to do this or, or the family's going to fall apart. She inspired me. I mean, that's a different view and maybe has its own theatrical benefit, but there is something stirring about seeing that in front of me. Yeah, I agree that the, the emotional commitment to those scenes is very heightened and, and the emotional effect that it has on you as you watch these characters have options and make choices 
for for these for the strike for for uh trying to affect some sort of change or get stuck in 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 one case get stuck in the in between of like I'm stuck between these choices but each of these different stories has a choice involved and and that that choice choice is uh, very interesting and very emotional to watch you have the you have the choice of Joe and Edna that you just described the choice of Miller to decide not to make a choice that would provide security for him but instead uh resist the ongoing war machine um and and uh resist the the corporation that was behind it and spying on on uh, on another member you also have Dr Benjamin making a pretty uh distinct choice in that scene when he's been told that he's been kicked out of kicked out of this hospital and that the hospital is not no longer doing uh, surgeries for charity anymore, he says, well, maybe I'll just, you know, I've been thinking about going to Russia and doing work over there. Um, and there's the, the Barnes kind of encourages him into that for a moment. But then you have the choice at the end of the scene where Bar- where where Benjamin says, no, no, no. I think I'm gonna. We're gonna stay here and be a part of the change that is coming, which is uh, an interesting choice, and it's especially uh, at our moment in history, looking back at that moment and after our conversation with after the revolution too. Um, uh, the, the that choice is a bold one, uh, 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 certainly a noble one, to say I'm not gonna go to this place that I know I could do my business well in, but I'm going to stay here where I'm being uh, uh, persecuted and continue to commit to trying to change something about this place. Yeah. And, and the, the sort of uh, option to run, I think is, is an undersold part of this play. There's almost in every vignette, in every situation, the, the option is given to run away. And I think that's sort of painted as generally the alternative. Um, I think that the, 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 um, the, the given circumstances of the story are that the situation as it is, is untenable that you cannot continue in the status quo in this play. Like I, I don't think this is a play about revolution or the status quo. This is a play. The contest is between, are we going to fight back or are we going to run away? Right. Is, is Edna going to take the kids and go? Is Miller going to uh, sort of uh, run away into these laboratories and, and literally uh, pull back from society entirely? The boss tells him, if you want to do this work, you got to eat and sleep here, man. This is, you got to pull into this, and that's all, folks. Uh, whether Dr. Benjamin is going to run away, whether Sid is, potent, you know, like his brother, the, the military has given him the option to go overseas and shoot people who are in the same situation that he's in. Uh, he could just leave and go do that. Uh, and, and so this option all the time between standing up or running off is presented. And, and every time, basically, someone stands up to speak at the union meeting, Fat and the gunmen are basically like, get him out of here, throw him out. Not let's have this debate and decide that you're wrong and the status quo is beneficial, but leave, go away. Those Your options are to agree with us or to go away. Yeah, yeah, and 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 only through the community being aware of each other's stories and choices to not run away do they eventually develop enough power to resist that, to resist the the uh, just the shouting down of the power structure, um, and 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 uh, and and then you also have the the kind of visceral. So so yes, slowly they build enough communal power to say what they want to say without fear of either fat or the gunman uh, taking them out. But that, that even that is not quite enough to fully push them out into strike. It is the, the death of their elected leader um, who we never see um, uh, who, who, who dies off stage that, that pushes them into this, this uh, we're going now, not only, not only do we think that we should be going, <laughs> we're going right now. Um, and, and the, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the Lamarck moment in, in Les Mis of, of, of suddenly this person who was very important to them, who they elected, who should be representing them was killed by the establishment that they're trying to resist. And, and that pushes them into this, this moment into the the drive to take what they have uh kind of built together this evening and put it into action yeah i i I wonder too if i mean if you're directing this play you may you got to decide the moment when 
the meeting has shifted, when the thing that has happened has happened, which is going to change the world forever. And, and an obvious option, of course, is learning that Lefty died. But I, I do want to point out that the stage directions indicate this is uh, when the final dude is making his big speeches at the end. And here is the stage direction as the big final speech is about halfway through. Um, throughout this whole speech, Agate or Agate is backed up by the other six workers so that from their activity, it is plain that the whole group of them are saying these things. Several of them may take alternate lines out of this long last speech. And as the speech continues, one of the things that's said is, don't wait for Lefty, he might never come. And so I wonder if the story of this play isn't uh, so much about Lefty, that left learning that Lefty died is just kind of the last straw, but that the thing that turns them, the thing that happens that changes the world forever is this standing up together. It's learning one after the other the brave decisions that they've made to stay rather than go. I mean, even the Florence and Sid scene where it's less obvious that someone has stood up and punched a dude in the mouth or whatever, they, <laughs> right. they say, look, I gotta go. We can't see each other anymore. This is a bad path forward. But the scene doesn't end with Sid walking out the door and leaving, right? That running away option. It ends with them collapsed together in this room. And, you know, I don't know exactly how you interpret the story of that i'm maybe interested in the idea that they're saying uh you know come what may you know we're we're gonna if if it's just if it's this then it's this but we're gonna be desperate and collapsed together maybe that, that scene has a little more gray area at the end i think but the the decision one after the other to stand up and say we're in this together i stood up in my situation in, in my unique individual life, I stood up and I didn't run away. And now because one after the other, we do that together, we have power. And if that's the thing that turns them, then Lefty's kind of an afterthought. And I, I'm, I mean, I think I'm interested in that as the story of worker power, not that it's learning that their leader that died, you know, is the thing that makes them riot, but that the, the stories that they've shared together is the thing that makes them riot. Yeah, certainly the the play is is about that kind of building of communal power, building of togetherness and knitting together of of these people to to overcome, to to rise up, to to make bold choices. And and those sorts of themes have have deep resonance throughout <laughs> throughout ever since it's been written throughout history basically of of social interaction um and all the way up to today. We're coming to the end of our time for this particular podcast. Um, but we'd love to keep talking about this play. There's so much in this play. Like we haven't even kind of like there, there would be a whole other podcast that was just zeroing in on the individual scenes and talking about goals. You, you talked a little bit about that, Jacob, with especially the Joe and Edna scene and the negotiating of goals. So, so well written, so intricately written. Um, and we're excited to keep talking about this play. We'd love to keep chatting with all of you about this. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at no script podcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. As we said at the beginning, this is an often produced play, whether uh, fully produced or in scenes and scene work. If you've read this play, been a part of this play, uh, seen this play, we'd love to keep talking about Waiting for Lefty with you. Absolutely. If you've liked our conversation here or any of the other many seasons of conversations we've got out there, just think about recommending the podcast to your family, your friends, the people in your drama class, the people in your community theater play, anybody you know that likes scripts, likes conversations about plays or theater or stories, just send them our way. They can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, lots of the other places that you find podcasts too. You can also like us on Facebook and then every Monday a link to the new episode appears right on our social media feed that'd be an easy way for folks that have a Facebook but aren't too tech savvy outside of that to just find the podcast easily on our Facebook page every Monday and hit play from there we're coming back with one more play of the season next week and then we're as we mentioned at the top taking a short break over the holiday season but we'll be back soon after that but until next week when we're talking about another one of theater's best scripts I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast.